I drive an old pickup truck. Does that surprise anybody? Anybody see my old pickup truck driving around here? I drive an old pickup truck. I've always driven older vehicles though. That is really nothing new. Maybe this is because growing up, um, it was our driveway that looked like a used car lot. Anybody else grow up like that? My dad would go to the auctions, buy cars that were cracked up, fix them, and sell them. That's how he made extra cash. I mean, he had six kids to raise. That's what he did. There was like four or five cars in my driveway at all time. I actually remember the very first day that my mom had a car that was all the same color. It was like groundbreaking in our family. Like the door and the front panel and everything was all red. It was an old Cadillac. And like we made a cake or something. It was crazy. They had been married for like 25 years at that point. She said, my car is all the same color. This is like amazing. That was that was our house. He's a great stepdad. He, he provided all that he could, but that was his, that's what he did. He fixed up cars. And they were in all sorts of conditions. Um, but I like older vehicles. I like older vehicles. Now, I don't mind newer ones, but I've just come to terms with I'm never going to buy a newer one. Okay, so I choose to love older vehicles. Right now, it gets me from point A to point B. That's why I love it. It's a 1998 Chevy pickup truck, 1998, which makes it about 20 years old. If you think this is too old of a vehicle to be driving, you should know that I upgraded from a 1997, okay? I went from a 1997 Chevy Tahoe to a 1998 pickup truck, so I feel like I'm doing really great, so keep your opinions to yourself. But I love this strange old truck. I love it. It's a little rusty, okay? It's a little rusty. My inside driver's handle doesn't work, so you have to roll down the window and then put your hand on the outside to then open it. So if my window stops working, then it's really more of a liability at that point. Um, there are some few things that started to break down one day. The wipers just stopped working, so I had to stop, um, you know, fix them and get that all going. But, you know, in general, it's, it's a good, reliable truck. In fact, today it's been raining quite a bit, so I, I, I know that there'll be some leaks from my windshield. That's another thing, okay? It's, if it rains really heavy for any sustained period of time, I get these little drips on my lap. But I deal with it. I, I can deal with all the problems. I can deal with all of those. It's still drivable no matter what happens. But there is one thing, there is one thing that my truck does, like it's a human, right? There's one thing that my truck does that actually makes it not drivable. There's one thing wrong with it that, I, 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 that just cripples me right in the moment. It gets a flat tire. Like, yeah, yeah, they actually rotate. It's like the back one left first and then the right one in the back, you know. And every few days, my tire is nearly flat. It just happens, okay? And this is because the rim is made out of aluminum and it's corroded over 20 years. And so the seal of the rubber on the tire just isn't tight. So slowly it leaks out and then I walk outside one day and then it's pretty much all flat. That's, that's my truck. See, I can deal with all the other stuff. What I can't deal with is that flat tire. I can't drive it anywhere. So if I'm walking outside in a rush, I got to stop, be patient, number one. Don't scream at anybody, number two. And then I got to get the compressor fired up or I got to make it to the gas station as fast as possible because I have to put air in that tire. That's the one thing. I can deal with all the other problems, but that's the one thing that will make my truck not drivable. And you guys know where I'm going with this. Much like my old truck, our lives experience pretty much the exact same thing. I've been waiting to preach this message for a long time, ever since I got this truck. I've been waiting to talk about its tire, okay? Our lives, we experience the exact same thing. There are seasons, there are seasons when our faith and our lives, although there's many things wrong with them, there are seasons where our faith runs flat. And we can deal with some of the bumps and bruises along the way, but there are certain seasons we are totally deflated and you can't move. There's nothing you can do. 
That's the one thing that doesn't allow you to move forward. All the air out of your sails, all the air out of your tire, whatever you want to say, there are seasons and moments in your life when your faith runs completely flat. And it's this flat faith which is the true problem and situation in our lives that we need to get over. This is the moment where we have to put focus on in our lives. We can live with the suffering. We've actually talked about suffering the last few weeks in the letter of James. We can live with the suffering. We can get by with our relationship with God when, when life doesn't go our way or when the money dries up or when our relationships break down or when there's some pain that comes into our life that we don't know how to handle. We can generally get by. Right? We call that willpower. We just keep moving ahead one, one step after another. We're really good at that. But when your faith runs flat, that's when everything comes to a halt. There's nothing. We don't know what to do. That's chapstick. Um, this is, thanks. This is really, I, totally not scripted. It's not part of the message. Um, this is like one of those problems in our life when our faith runs flat. Because this happened to me just the other day. I walked outside and I was like, I have anxiety about being late. I don't like to be late anywhere. Okay. So I have to be like seven minutes early. I think it's like a pride thing. Ooh, I'm on time. Yeah. He only beats me. He's 15 minutes early everywhere. So I walk outside. My tire is completely fat. So I got to stop and I get all twisted up. But that's the one thing in my car that doesn't make it drive. And I, I, was, I was reading this message in James this morning. And I felt like our life goes through these seasons where it's just completely flat. And this is because, I'm going to transition now to another phrase, we get this sort of spiritual sickness in our life. That's what happens. You see, the, the flatness of faith is only the result of a spiritual sickness. Our spiritual life isn't where we want it to be. It's not as strong or as powerful, as clear as we need it to be in that moment. So what do we do? What, what, what shall we do? Last week, we talked about being patient during suffering. We talked about a man named Job who, who God really just destroyed and then built up again. And the whole time, God was teaching him that if you're patient, all this suffering is going to lead in a deeper relationship with me. You're going to see me. You've heard about me, but now because you live through suffering, you're going to see me. And that's the goal, is to know and see God. So what do we do when our faith, when our faith runs flat? What do we do when we come down with the spiritual sickness? Right? Some of you will get that. Before I share with you what the Word of God instructs us to do when this spiritual sickness sets in, I'll share what I think our default responses are. So let's say we're having a bad season in our life, and you'd be like, yeah, I'm flat. My, my spiritual life is flat. I feel like I'm spiritually sick. I got nothing. I'm not happy. I'm not joyful. Everybody's super mean, and I'm the only perfect one in my life. You know those times? Like, everybody around me is just horrible, and I'm the best. That's a spiritual sickness. What do we do in those moments? What do we do when the spiritual sickness sets in? Here's a few of our defaults. Number one, we look for something to distract us. It's usually our default. We look for some new hobby, some new person, some new job. We look for something that we can control in order to make ourselves more joyful and more happy. Now, that is your default response. That is my default response. It always has been and always will be. That's what we will do first. We will take it upon our own selves to do something to change the scene, to flip the script. We're going to do something that we can control in order to have a more spiritual life. And really, all we're doing is just trying to find happiness. That is a default response. And I would also say that those default responses let us down time and time and time again. They do. There are temporary moments of happiness that, that, help us, that do not help us sustain a life of joy. You know this and I know this. The more money we get, the more money we want. We jump from relationship to relationship thinking that person's going to satisfy our desires and 
Most of the time they don't. You realize you're just as wicked as I am, and now we're together, so we got to figure this out, right? There you go. You're in it now. That's what happens. A marriage or a committed relationship like that is really just two sinners living together. Now, that's a weird thing to do. But you see, we, we have these default responses that when our, we come down with a spiritual sickness, we feel like if I can take control and I can just do that or do this, everything's going to turn around and it's going to be fine. But time and time again, we're let down by that. We are. It totally takes us even further into the valley. We, our tire is even more flat than it was the day before. Nothing really works. But what if there was another way? I mean, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We have to believe there is another way to approach our spiritual sickness than the things that we can control and the things that we can do. And that is what our final message in James is about. Now, I'm going to read from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I'm going to read all those verses, but I'm not going to teach about every one of those verses. I'm going to just take a few of them that are found in the middle, and I'm going to spend our time there, okay? I'm just going to intentionally focus on a few of those verses, um, and that's where we'll start. So let me read James chapter 5, verses 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you, slash sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'm going to focus on really verses probably 13 through 18. Okay, that's pretty much where the primary of this, this message is written from. Um, I like verses 19 and 20. Okay, it's not like I don't like it, but we're going to focus on 13 through 18. Here's the big idea of verses 13 through 18. The big idea is this, that the prescription for spiritual sickness is powerful prayer. The prescription for spiritual sickness is powerful prayer. When your faith is flat because you are spiritually sick, the only thing that we should do is call for prayer. That is the number one thing we should do. I'll reword that. Maybe not the only thing. The number one thing, the first step we need to do is call for powerful prayer. This is a fitting conclusion to this letter. Week 17, we've spent 17 weeks going through this letter. And James spends nearly five chapters correcting us, encouraging us, um, inviting us to surrender more and more of our lives to the will of God. I mean, this letter supposedly is one of the earliest letters written in the church to, to one of the earliest church communities on the planet. And this is the instruction given to that little church community. And things haven't changed. We can absolutely, this is relevant today. It'll be relevant 100 years from now. James has been instructing us, encouraging us. But I would say that these final instructions are the foundation of his letter. Because everything that he has said can set and find its stability on top of these verses. He says, for those who suffer, they are to pray. And then he says to those who are cheerful, you are to sing. And to anyone who is sick, let them call for prayer. 
And this is the little verse within this, the five or six verses I'm going to teach from that I'm going to focus on. Anyone who is sick, let them call for prayer. Now we have to start with something, though. We have to understand this a little better. This may be one of the most understood or most disputed portions of this section. At first glance, we may think that James is calling for prayer for a physical healing or a disease or a sickness. That's what a lot of people read this and go, yes, if I'm sick, I'm supposed to call for prayer. But that doesn't fit within the context of what comes after and what comes before it. I believe that James is using the word sick to describe a spiritual state of illness or deficiency. That's what he's talking about. Not a physical sickness, although we do pray over physical sickness. We believe God providentially heals when we ask him to heal, okay? This church will never teach and does not believe that the Bible has called certain people with a gift of healing, so if I walk up to you and touch you, you will be healed. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches. We believe God heals people physically through his prayer when he wants to according to his will. That's what we believe. But these verses don't talk about a physical sickness, James isn't saying if you're sick or you have a disease or you have cancer, cancer, you need to call for the elders of the church to pray. He's talking about a spiritual sickness because of all the suffering that's been going on. Remember those past two weeks? If you haven't, you can catch them on the website. It's the past two weeks of suffering and pain which results in our spiritual sickness. It wears us down. It tears us up. The word we translate here as sick, let me just give you a little bit of background so you trust me, okay? Some of you are like, for real? It says sick, bro. You know, like, okay. So the word we translate here as sick is used 18 times in the New Testament, the little right section of your Bible, okay? And in all 18 times, um, it is used to refer to a physical sickness, okay? So the word that we read here as sick is, is used for physical sickness, but it is also used 14 other times in the New Testament to refer to an emotional state of sickness, a spiritual sickness. In fact, all but three times when this word is used in what the Bible calls the epistles, they're like letters to the churches, instructions in the New Testament, all but three times um, it's used, it's used to talk to somebody's emotional state of spiritual sickness. That's why we're going to take it as that. We're not going to talk about physical sickness, we're going to talk about emotional, spiritual sickness. So it makes sense for us that in the context of what James has already brought us through, patience and suffering, the example of Job last week, Job was a spiritually sick man. We, we read that last week. He was sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping his sores, lamenting in what had happened in his life. James says, when you are like that, the first thing you are to do is to call for the elders to pray. The act of praying is the most powerful Church, it is the most powerful yet most underutilized act and privilege of the Christian life. It is the most powerful yet most underutilized act and privilege. It is a privilege of your Christian life. We have direct connection to God, the one true living God. We believe there is no other. We believe there is one God. We have fellowship with him. We have relationship with him. We have communion with him through prayer. I've been reading a book by the man named E.M. Bounds. He wrote a lot of books on prayer. He wrote um, plenty of books. He died like 1913, so he's like in back in the day, we would call it, and he wrote a lot of books in his life, and they were all about prayer. That's the majority of his life. He focused on this act of praying. It's what E.M. Bounds says. The most important lesson we can learn is how to pray. The most important lesson we can learn is how to pray. Indeed, 
We must pray so that our prayers take hold of God. The man who has done the most and the best praying is the most immortal because prayers do not die. It's powerful. Perhaps the lips that utter them are close to death or the heart that felt them may have ceased to beat. But the prayers live before God and God's heart is set on them. Prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them. They outlive a generation. They outlive an age. They outlive even a world. God says this in Isaiah 56, for my house, talking about his people, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's the church's privilege to be able to pray to God. That's what he calls us to. More from my buddy E.M. Bounds. Praying puts God into full force within the world. It puts God full force into the world. To a prayerful person, God is present in a realized force. It is real what he is doing. It is accessible. You can see it, you can feel it, you can know it. The person who has prayed many acceptable prayers has done the truest and greatest service to the next generation. The person who has prayed many acceptable prayers has done the truest and greatest service to the incoming and next generation. This is nothing new throughout the Bible. God instructs his people to pray. He calls on them to pray. That's why we, we actually make it a part of our service as the worship of people. Now, we, we probably don't do it as long as we should. It's not as detailed as we should. We're trying to get better at that as a church to pray together on Sunday mornings. That's why we have that time of prayer. It's not to fill time because we needed something else to do. It's because God calls his people to pray together. That's why we do it. Throughout the Bible, God instructs you to pray. And this is because, because of a few things. Number one, God desires to hear from you. He desires to support you, and he desires to give you what you cannot give yourself. God desires to give you what you cannot give to yourself. How many times have you or I reached a point in our life when we have no idea which way to turn or which decision to make or how to respond to a certain situation? That's like every day for me. Every day there is something that's going to happen, and you really are like, I don't know. Now they call it adulting, right? It's a... It's actually called life, but we gave it a term, right? I don't want to adult today, which is pretty funny. But those are the moments. That's what happens where we actually don't know what to do. And it's in these moments when we actually try all sorts of, what I'm going to say, self-reliance strategies. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those are the default responses we said earlier. When we don't know what to do or decision to make or which way to turn, we try a bunch of our self-reliant strategies, hoping that those strategies will release the pressure that we feel, will relieve us of the pain that's starting to overcome us. We resort to self-reliance, and here's why, because we have not been exercising our right and our privilege to pray. Self-reliance is a default when you stop praying. That's what happens. When our suffering overcomes us, we are encouraged to be patient and to pray. If you want to know more about patience through suffering, I think that was last week's message about Job. You can catch that on the website. But oftentimes our suffering drags us into the fog. You know, it's sort of a, a, flog, a fog that plagues our spiritual sickness. It's like this fog comes over your life and you really don't know where to go. You can only see so far in front of you and you're just taking it one step at a time. That's what suffering does. And although our situation may get better, it's generally not very long until we find ourselves back in the fog again after we've tried the default responses. 
You come down with a spiritual sickness. This fog overcomes your life. You try everything that you know in your will to try, and it's not very long where you're right back in the same position you were a few days before. Church, if we are to become a people of prayer, as God has instructed us to be, we must first come to terms with our own sin in reaction to our suffering. So you can say, well, I just made a bad decision. But what if it was as strong as we are not supposed to do that? God does not command us to do that. If we are to become a people of prayer, we must first come to terms with our own sinful reaction to suffering. And that is this, self-reliance. This may be a harsh word. I believe self-reliance is a sin. Self-reliance is a sin. Now, that's what we're taught from a young age, aren't we? That's what we're taught. Pick up the spoon by yourself. Feed yourself. Go to the bathroom by yourself. Brush your teeth. Those are all great things. Brush your teeth by yourself. I always say raising kids, like the moment they can go to the bathroom and brush their teeth by themselves, psh, my job is done. All right? They can get themselves a shower and eat by themselves and go to the bathroom. Psh, you've raised a human. That's it. But we're taught from a really young age to be self-reliant. But see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you start following him, he never says, work harder, try harder, be self-reliant. He says, rely on me. And so we have to figure out how to make this switch when the sickness sets in. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in all of these books, 66 books, nowhere will you read that God has instructed you to try harder. He never says that. He never is going to tell you to, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as they say. Nowhere in the Bible will you read that God is telling you to love yourself more or to rely on yourself more. In fact, Jesus says, deny yourself. Jesus says, you are filled with the Spirit of God, but that flesh and that mind and that heart and that soul, anything that thing thinks of most of the time first is wrong. So you need to deny that. And you need to follow my word. You need to follow the leading of my spirit. Self-reliance will only result in a further sickness. And what you will read over and over again in the Bible is God's people crying out to him and they are routinely lifted up because of his love and his mercy once they cry out to him. If, I, if you wanted me to sum up what the story of the Bible is from the very beginning, it is men and women like you and me trying to go at it on their own, failing really hard, realizing that they shouldn't have done that, crying out to God. God saves them and lifts them up, and they repeat and repeat and repeat. That's what the Bible's about. That's why self-reliance is a sin. You see, when we choose to not pray, we are actually choosing... So if you choose to not pray and you choose to be self-reliant when you're spiritually sick, you're actually choosing to not believe in God. I want this to like really cut deep. I'm saying some things that you're like, seriously? No, I do believe in God. No, I get it. But when you choose to not pray, you are choosing to not rely on God's strength in that moment. It's a harsh word. We need to feel that though. When you're choosing to not pray, you're actually choosing to not believe in God. When we choose to not pray, we are choosing to rely on ourselves for our healing. When we could be relying on God for healing. Let me ask you this. Who, in your opinion, has a better chance of healing you from spiritual sickness? You or God? I would say God. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery. The God who parted the waters. The God who shut the lion's mouth. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. 
the God who saves sinners from eternal condemnation, that is the God we are to be relying on, not yourself. It's all right there, but we forget it because our willpower, we think, has to kick in. It's so strong. We have to do this. We have to conquer this. Self-reliance is a sin. The act of praying is, without a doubt, the first thing a follower of Jesus Christ should become proficient in. It's, it's one of the most intimate things we can do, but it's one of the things we should be the best at when we start walking with Jesus. How many times have you been together with people and they're like, who wants to pray? And you're like, uh-uh, not doing that, creepy people. I ain't praying in front of nobody. Like, I get it, okay? That's normal. But it really should be the first thing we become proficient in. It should be the first thing we're encouraging one another to do. It should be the first thing we're attempting to do as a church. James says, is anyone suffering? Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, we don't use oil here. That's another conversation. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's so packed full of promises when, when we follow what James instructs us to do. And then he, he gives us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning he was human. And he prayed fervently, like powerfully, like forever with passion and with strength that it would not rain for three years and six months. Now, that's a separate story. You can read about that. You can read about that in a different part of the Bible. Elijah has a book named after him. He was a prophet of God. Okay, that's, that's who this guy is. James uses him as an example. Verse 18, then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Friends, the first thing we are to do when you feel spiritually sick is to call upon the church to pray for you. That's your first step. That's your very first step. Because you're never going to make it alone. You're never going to make it alone. But more importantly, James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as well. Like we all know we're never going to make it alone. We all actually kind of understand that. Our actions don't always agree with that because we attempt to make it alone. So we know that part. But James goes even deeper. We don't just call for the church to pray for us because you can't do life alone. We kind of already get that. I can't even eat lunch alone. I get so bored, right? Like, like we get that. We need relationships. We like to have relationships. But James says not, that's not the only reason you call for prayer. The actual reason you call for prayer is there are strong people among you, healthy spiritual leaders, that I've given the power to pray over you in the church. I have given that power to the church. The prescription for spiritual sickness is powerful prayer. That's the big idea. You need to know that. And the main point of this passage then is, it's a little long. It's kind of a sentence. I think it's a sentence. Don't correct me if it's not. Okay. Um, the energetic prayers of a righteous man are a potent force in calling down the power of God for restoring the weak and struggling believer to spiritual health. Whew. Okay. It's a long main point. The energetic prayers of a righteous man are a potent force in calling down the power of God for restoring the weak, struggling believers to spiritual health. That's what James is telling the church. That's why he specifically says, call for the elders to pray for you. Now, we do have a team of people at this church who prays over any requests that are submitted through paper or online. We have that. It's usually Wednesdays or the day that other people are on the team. But Wednesday morning is my morning. If you ever ask me to pray for you, I'm either writing it down or typing it on my phone and sending myself an email. And my Wednesday morning is dedicated to this church. 
I have everyone's name somewhere written down in my office, and I can go name by name. Sometime I just think I need to pray for that person. But I spend time in silence praying over this church. That's my, I'm called to that. But I don't just do it because I'm called to it. I do it because I love it. I really enjoy it. It doesn't make me a hero. It just makes me faithful to what God has told me to do, to shepherd his people, to care for his people. We do have a team of people that pray, but this takes our prayer one step further because James says there's a specific type of person you are to seek out. That's great if your church has a, a team that prayers over these requests and, and gets people like, like in before God through their prayer, but there's, there's a person, there's a type of leadership role in the church that James says that's who you are to call on. That's who you are to make your sickness known to so you may be healed. And so to understand this main point, we are a church plant. I'm going to sort of step outside the message now and say, uh, we need to understand this main point a little deeper because half of us are going, who's an elder? That sounds old school. That sounds like, like an older person that's really mean to me. Because I was, I was told to obey my elders and I never did. <laughs> What's up with those? What's up with that word? We're a two-year-old church plant. We have elders in this church. Elder, you can say the word bishop. You can say the word pastor. You can say the word overseer. In the Bible, those are all the same. In the church, I'm considered an elder who preaches. It's my function. A shepherd of the church. We have elders. None of them are actually inside of our church because we're a church plant. So the elders of our church are the elder people and the pastor from where we came from and my church planting coach who goes to another church in southwest Michigan. Now, we don't have elders within our church for a reason because we have to raise up our own elders. We're starting everything. From, everything we do here really is done for the first time within our church. We take slow steps to build this church. But here's what an elder is called to. It's a long list found in 1 Timothy. The Bible instructs that each local church, if you were to drive around town and look at each church's building, every one of these churches don't get to get out of this. This is how they're supposed to be led by men like this. They're supposed to be above reproach. Okay? That means like when you throw an accusation at them, it doesn't stick. That's what that means. Accusation after accusation, they're above reproach. It don't stick. Okay? Velcro's not working. Those things fall flat. It doesn't matter. There's no evidence. There's nothing there. Above reproach. Husband of one wife. Sober-minded. Self-controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not a drunk. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage God's church? He must not be a recent convert, new to Christianity, or else he may become puffed up with pride and he would fall into condemnation by the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, non-Christians. He must have a good reputation with people outside of the church as well so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Every elder at every church must follow in accordance with those characteristics. If you are new to church, this church life is new for you. That's why we love church planning. Because we get people involved in church life and introduce them to Jesus. That's why we're here. You need to know that God has instructed each local church to be led spiritually by strong men. That's what the Bible says. They're called elders, overseers, pastors, bishops. They're kind of all the same in the New Testament. All those words mean the same thing. In the same way, James says, it is those strong leaders who must be willing to pray for those who are spiritually sick, to pray for those who are feeling 
defeated, to pray for those who have been trampled underfoot by their pain and by their suffering. James does not describe a type of strong person. James does describe the type of strong person we are to lean on. He mentions a man named Elijah. So he says, when you're spiritually sick, call for the elders, because that's where prayer, that's where the power is. And then I just gave you the characteristics of an elder. And then James uses an example of a man named Elijah. So real quick, story of Elijah. I'm not going to take very long. There's a book written, all of his work that he did. You can read it. Long story short, what James refers to is, at one point in his life, okay, he prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. There's a story behind that. And then he prayed that it would, and God made it happen. At different points in his life, Elijah struggled. He was hungry. He was afraid. He battled with depression. Yet when he prayed with strength, amazing things happened. And those main things being his, pray, his prayers both created and ended a devastating three and a half year drought. That's how powerful he was. And this is why I think James uses Elijah as an example. Because it is the prayers of a strong, faithful leader those prayers of a strong and faithful leader have the power to bring rain upon the dry, parched soul. Just like the rain fell on the earth, so the trees would grow again and all the crops would grow again, the, the, the prayers of a strong, faithful leader has the power to bring the grace of God on top of your life. It has the power to save you from that sickness. No doubt there are many people in this room who are in a season of what we could call drought. I'm using a lot of terms to describe our spiritual life. Spiritual sickness, flat tire, drought, kind of all lead us to the same thing. Many of us go through these seasons of drought. You are spiritually sick, maybe because of some suffering and some pain, maybe because of a, the sins in your life you cannot seem to shake. The temptations keep coming, the devil keeps attacking, and you keep falling. There are times of drought. And if this is you, I need you to know, down with the self-reliance. Seek first the prayers of an energetic and strong, righteous leader because they are powerful enough to cause the grace of God to rain down upon your life. Restoring you to spiritual wholeness. And not with some weird, like, mystic sense of power. Like, not that. Like, you're not going to see rain cloud come, you know, in the middle of nowhere. But in the power of the Spirit of God, which is in alignment with the Word of God and the will of God, what he wants for your life. Another part of the Bible, it says this, and this is the confidence. This is your confidence, by the way. It's talking about you. This is your confidence that we have towards Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Man, when you think about that way, you're like, why am I not praying? I know, I think the same thing. <laughs> why am I not praying more? E.M. Bounds, the man who I've been quoted a few times, he woke up every day for 35 years at 4 a.m. and spent four hours in prayer before his day started. Some people are like, well, he ain't got kids, right? Like, <laughs> we don't know that. That's what he did. He committed to that. I'm sure he grew in that, right? Doesn't say to do that in the Bible. So if you're not, you're not like, right? You're not upsetting God. But I think once he realized the power that prayer brought to his life, he could not do it. He had to do it. It's what drove him. When we pray in the spirit of God for the will of God to be done in our lives, church, God hears us. 
It's a great reminder. This is why James encourages us to pray, because the will of God revealed through the word of God will encourage those who are experiencing spiritual sickness. The prayers of a strong and energetic leader are to be found in the elders of the local church. That's where they're to be found. Now, this puts us in a little bit of a pickle, doesn't it? Because we've got to call up these people who are the elders of our church, and we've got to be like, yo, we need you to come down to church today. We don't have our own elders yet. That's coming. So let's apply this then. Told you I wasn't going to go through every verse. We're going to apply this to figure out what this really means. I hope you're encouraged that if you are in a state of spiritual sickness or drought, that the, the prayers of a strong, energetic, righteous person found in the context of a local church could be and should be a blessing on your life. You should seek that out. So here's the number one thing. So in spirit of applying this message and, and figuring out what to do with it when we leave, there's a few things for us this morning. Number one, CityGate has been, this church, has been and will continue to be and continue to develop humble, qualified men who desire to lead God's people in the local church. We have been. We're getting more serious about it at the turn of the year. Okay? Every church must have men who fit those qualifications to lead them spiritually. And you know what their main job is? Is to pray for the church. That's their main job. That's what they're called to. They're not called to figure out what color this carpet should be or how those lights are supposed to look. They're called to pray and lead spiritually. That's their number one function. Men, this is me talking to you. The Bible says that if you desire to serve in this way, if you feel leading to serve in this way in the church, if God says, I need you to serve that way, if you're feeling like you can't shake this thought of leading spiritually and going through uh, uh, before God on behalf of the church in prayer, the Bible says that you desire a noble task. You do. The Bible calls it a noble task. It's good to desire this. See, what we often think is like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand and think I should serve that way. That's kind of like prideful, isn't it? Like I'm raising my hand thinking I'm amazing. No, because all those characteristics are not men who are prideful. Those are characteristics of men who are seeking after God. Those are humble, selfless men. By the end of 2019, this church hopes to have a group of men selected to serve this church in the office of elder. Probably more than a few, probably three or four. So please reach out to me if this is a leading on your heart. That's, that's one of the application pieces. It's very simple. If God has wired you and designed you to be a powerful prayer, if you desire to lead God's people in this way, you need to reach out to me and we will start the process. There is an application process. We have designed an application for you to fill out. We're going to get into some stuff, just so you're aware. Because the leadership of God's people is no joke. It's a good thing, though. Those who are most skilled in prayer will do the most for God in this world. How much we forget that. This is man or woman and child. Those who are the most skilled in prayer will do the most work for God. We need to know that. It's not those with the most money. It's not those who are at church the most. It's not those who can play the songs the best. It's not even those who can preach the best. Because let's face it, I'm like hitting 50% half the time. You know who can do the most work in the kingdom of God, it is those who are skilled in prayer. The one who can wield the power of prayer is the strong one in God's kingdom. He is one of God's heroes. They are God's saints, God's servants, God's agents, the people who are powerful in prayer. And Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find it. Jesus says, knock 
and the door will be opened to you. The strongest one in the kingdom of Jesus is he who can knock the best through prayer. And the most persistent and the loudest and the most powerful. And the secret to success in the kingdom of Jesus is the ability to pray. This is success. That's the first one. The church is called to select men of character, those characteristics found in 1 Timothy. If you have any questions about that, you should be able to find my contact information somewhere or just come up to me and say, I'd like to talk about that. Because this church, at the end of next year, we desire to develop those leaders because we can kick those guys out who are looking from the outside in and be like, yo, we're on our own. Okay? It's a good thing. We're growing as a church. We're always growing as a church. That's what we want to do. Here's number two. Second point of application. Do not get caught up in quick fixes for your spiritual sickness. Don't get caught up in those quick fixes. Get caught up in the spirit of God by way of prayer to God. That's what we need to do. Do not get caught up in the quick fixes. There are so many default responses that are dangerous to our spiritual health. They absolutely are. And you know which one you go to first. You know it. Because you've lived by it and you've died by it. Substances. Money. Relationships. Some of us, it's isolation. We go into the corner. and We don't want to do anything with anybody. Leave me alone. That's self-reliance. Anger. We get angry. We get bitter. Enough with the quick fixes. If you're in the season of spiritual sickness, what I would ask you to do is call out to this church to pray for you. If you want to know very clearly what that looks like, right now that looks like me and some people that I'm going to bring. We will pray over you. Now, I don't know if you'll walk out here like two inches off the ground. I have no idea. But I, knew, I do know that this is what James says, that you are first to pray, not to try to fix it on your own. So instead of the quick fix, we are to seek out prayer from the leaders of this church. I want you to know, I don't want you to sit alone in isolation. This church is a family, and we are to share one another's burdens. And most of the time, we don't want to share those burdens because here's why. They're filled with guilt and shame, and we think we will be judged. Listen. When you come to seek prayer from this church, there are three things you can always count on. There will be no shame, no guilt, and no judgment. 